Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is God's word. Let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Father, thank you very much that we can hear precisely what you've spoken. And the words you spoke through your son about his work, uh, those are words that are still living and active today, and we need them. Uh, Please, would you be at work by your spirit persuading us afresh of the truth of these words, convicting our hearts so that we listen ever more attentively to you for our good, for our joy, for the honour of your name. Amen. Actually, the question of um, uh, Hebrews 1, actually all of it, 1, 1 to 2, 4, is a very simple question. Who are you listening to? That's it, really. Who are you listening to? Not so much what. Uh, I don't think the, the author is particularly concerned uh, where the, what radio station you're listening to. Uh, so don't be worried about that. Some of you pretend you're cool and then you give people a lift and you turn on the car and it's Magic FM or Smooth FM and you're a little bit embarrassed. But the author isn't particularly concerned about what you're listening to. The issue is who are you listening to? Because who you're listening to will affect you enormously. 
it'll shape you. Fundamentally, who are you listening to? Let's consider a few voices. Um, we'll, we'll come to the, the, the particular setting here in a moment. But um, let's just hear one because it's, it's always uh, in the news at the moment. If, you, uh, if you're a Christian or you wouldn't call yourself a Christian here this evening, but actually you, the common voice you listen to or more often than anything probably is, is a secular atheist voice, which is fairly, I mean, I couldn't care less in one sense, but it's fairly relentless. Uh, it comes at us uh, uh, from different forms at the moment. And that voice will, amongst other things, uh, if it bangs two prejudices particularly hard, so it seems to me, one would be, uh, well, Christianity is baseless. And two would be, religion is responsible for every evil there is in the single, in the world, without fail. Those are the two sort of drums that get banged incredibly hard, so it would seem. Now, if you don't listen for you, if you don't think for yourself, if you purely listen to those voices, that'll affect you. Obviously, well, it was intriguing listening to, or excuse me, reading. I don't know many people uh, have read much stuff by A. N. Wilson. You kind of have to be a cool historian like me to um, uh, to enjoy the sort of biographies that he writes of the Victorians and, and such things. They are genuinely a great read. Um, but uh, for for twenty years of his life, really, from his twenties until mid forties, he, he was a fairly vocal atheist uh, and wrote a biography of Jesus saying, obviously, this is all made up and a complete load of nonsense, uh, and was a vociferous a columnist, you read him in the, um, uh, uh, the Standard and other things, uh, aggressively criticising Christianity. Then about four years ago, he put his hand in the air and said, oh, I'm a Christian. And uh, it was like, double, oh, excuse me, uh, that's slightly unusual. And there are three reasons, really, he gave. One was um, lots of his friends were dying, and he wondered, is that it? Uh, two, he knew some Christians and thought their lifestyle was far more consistent and coherent than many other of his friends. But the third one was interesting. The third one was the dogmatism of his secular friends got to him after a while. It really got to him, an unfounded, unthinking dogmatism. He said, we'd sit there having dinner parties, and someone once again would say, yes, and Christianity and other religions, they're responsible for all war and evils in this world. And he's, he said, look, as a historian, I couldn't just sit there and listen to that. Of course, I said, oh, look, come on, guys. You can't say that after the 20th century, after the dictators of the last 50-odd years. You can't say that. Yes, you can. Yes, you can, because you know Mao and Stalin and Hitler, they all set up religions. That level of unthinking dogmatism got to him after a while because he knew that's not true. That's not what they thought they were doing. It's not what they claimed they were doing. It's not what they did. If you're sitting there and insisting that's true, there is a group thing going on here that is bananas. And so he said, no. And so he took himself back to church and thought, this is true. I can engage with the people here. They'll give and take. They're not just sat in their bunkers throwing out grenades and refusing to engage. But it took him 20 years. For 20 years he was just listening to these voices. Mm, this is right, this is right. Yes, Christianity, awful, awful. All religions, terrible. Until he thought, is that right? And he thought for himself, who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? Is the question really of Hebrews chapter 1. 
Now, that may not be obvious because there are a lot of angels in this passage. If you read it, uh, all of a sudden, um, uh, the writer of Hebrews, we don't know uh, precisely who wrote it, uh, originally uh, a word of exhortation is how he describes this. So presumably it was a sermon that then gets re- written down and then a few things are added on at the end. But all of a sudden, chapter 1, he's, uh, he gets wildly carried away with angels. He starts talking about Jesus, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. We looked at that last time. Chapter 2, he says, don't ignore Jesus. But in between, angels. Um, now, why is that? Well, again, I think the two possible reasons. The primary one that the book throws up is that the audience, that the, his audience in the first century, his listeners, readers, were being given a hard time. They are undergoing persecution. We looked at this last week in chapter 10. They're going to court. They're going to prison. They're having their possessions taken away. They're having a hard time for being Christians. And so for some, the temptation was to withdraw from Christianity into Judaism because Judaism was a state-sponsored religion by the Roman Empire. So it was safe. No one was going to persecute you at the synagogue. Whereas if you went to the little house church... You could be given a hard time. So therefore, for some, because of threats, because of persecution, some are withdrawing from the Christian faith. They're drifting away from Jesus just for their own safety. In one sense, that's entirely understandable. But that's what's going on. Why angels? Well, I think in part because uh, Jewish tradition, and you see this uh, as explained in the New Testament, Acts chapter 7, Galatians 3, Jewish tradition was that the law at Mount Sinai was given to Moses via angels. And so the whole of the book of Hebrews is going to emphasise the fact you don't need to go back to the Old Testament. Jesus is better. It's the word that gets used countless times. A better faith, a better salvation you have. So don't go back to Sinai and Moses and angels. Probably one reason uh, that it's here. The other one may be, this is a bit more speculative, but it's certainly modern. Angels are quite cool. Angels are quite cool. People quite like angels. To say, I'm a Christian who believes in Jesus Christ, I'm spiritual and I'm in touch with angels. Are you now? Are you now? That's quite interesting. And some people always like the new and the novel. And so Jesus, that's okay for a while, but they want, you know, they want their iJesus 5B now. They want the latest thing. You're on 5B, I've got 5C. Woo! Uh, the latest thing comes out, and they want the newest thing all the time. And it may be that that was going on. That there's a sense in which angels, uh, you know, well, with Jesus, that's okay, but angels now, that's quite exciting. Now the plea of the whole book of Hebrews is, listen to Jesus. I'll be emphasised in various different ways. But listen to Jesus. We said last week the whole book alternates between taking Old Testament passages and showing how wonderful Jesus Christ is. He is the fulfilment, the greater, the better of these things. So every little section goes, Jesus is wonderful. Warning. Don't turn away from him. It would be terrible if you do. So we're in one of those sections at the moment. Chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 4 is all one section. Uh, and then you get chapter 2, verse 5, uh, to uh, chapter 4, 13. Again, there's another section. Jesus is wonderful, don't turn from him. That's the way the whole book works. So that's what we're at uh, this evening. Listen to him. Look at Jesus, he's magnificent. Be obsessed with listening to him. 
the last week in chapter 1, 1 to 4, we, um, the, the emphasis was in Jesus Christ you have a finished word about his finished work. Don't expect anything more, anything new. You've got a finished word about his finished work. It's chapter 1, 1 to 4. Uh, but then this subject slightly gets introduced in verse 3. So the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. His work is finished of uh, providing purification for sins. And off we go from that point. Because he sat down, he is superior, greater. So our passage tonight works a little bit like this. Uh, verses 5 to 14 of chapter 1. The sun is greater than angels. And then two wonderful, so listen to him. It's very simple. Okay? Jesus is better than any angel, so listen to him. Don't get distracted. Let's just work through it. First then, uh, chapter 1 and uh, verses 5 to 14. The sun is greater than angels. Seven quotes uh, from the Old Testament, uh, mainly from the book of Psalms. Uh, but seven quotes, I think it works like this. There are three pairs and then a conclusion. So uh, the first two quotes emphasise the sun. The second two quotes, the angels are inferior. The third two quotes, the sun is immutable. He never changes, unlike angels. And the conclusion comes in verse 13. It works a bit like that. Okay, let's go. Verses, um, verse 5 then. Uh, verse 5, two quotes. Jesus is the sun. And angels are not. He's really the point of it. Jesus is the sun. Psalm 2 in verse 5, emphasises um, the king is, it's enthronement day. It's the king being enthroned. Interesting, God says, or he introduces it, verse 5, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've become your father. Become? Jesus always the son, and the father always the father? Yes. But in the logic of the book of Hebrews, when Jesus suffers, is made perfect in obedience, dies on a cross, rises and ascends on high and sits down, he is now Son of God in power. He receives a new title. He is now the reigning Son of God. He's entered into the full prerogatives of his sonship. He's got the inheritance. He's got the keys to the family car. It's that sort of thing. Uh, so he becomes some, yeah, okay, great. Jesus is son. And so it's emphasized again, I'll be his father, he'll be my son. Okay, that's the first two quotes. Jesus is son, angels are not. Second two, angels serve him. Uh, verse six, again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, better when God brings his firstborn into the heavenly world. That's how it gets translated in chapter 11. It's a reference, again, to Jesus ascending to heaven. Two things. Let all God's angels worship him. And in speaking of angels, God says, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. Angels are, you get excited by them, good. But angels are civil servants for Jesus Christ. But good ones. Well-behaved ones, not Sir Humphrey ones, if that means anything to you. Uh, they are the ones that do his bidding. He orders them around. They're his servants, his butlers. But they're quite cool ones. Think about my servants. Here is flames of fire and here is winds. I mean, that'd be quite cool if you could, you know, physically control those things. And Jesus does. Angels are just servants to him. 
That's those two in six and seven. And then the last pair of quotes that works as a pair, uh, verses eight to twelve. Again, I think they're stressing Jesus doesn't change. He is eternally the same. It's the stress of both of them. So verse eight, about the Son, he, God says, your throne will last forever and ever. Verse 12, you remain the same. Your years will never end. So it's again, it's his unchanging nature that's being emphasised. Now the two little quotes, uh, Psalm 45, if you know that one, it's the, uh, the king's wedding day in Psalm 45. Your throne of God will last forever. And look at the nature of the king's reign. This is what King Jesus looks like. Righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God your God has set you above your companions. Don't you want that sort of king? Again, sorry, a little tangent, but this is just one of those areas where modern thinking is historically incompetent, really strong in some ways. Because where does a righteous, ethical, legal system come from? Where does compassion, where does care for the weak, where does provision for the poor, where do you find, where do those ideas come from? They don't grow on trees. And they're not the product of abstract philosophical thinking. They're grounded in a Judeo-Christian ethic. The West is built upon that framework. And that's why we have a pretty good legal system. Lots of people say today, oh, we don't need the Bible to be good. No, but you have had it for 2,000 years, which is why we have a pretty good legal system in society. So you can throw it away now if you desire, but you're borrowing the hist- you're borrowing credit from the past, and that's what you're living on. So, as I said this earlier, this today, actually this morning, try, try imposing democracy in Afghanistan. How does that go? Well, all we need is just liberal democracy and everyone flourishes. Or Egypt, how's that going? Now, without a legacy, without a Judeo-Christian legacy of righteousness, of compassion, it doesn't work. And that's what this king brings. It's a very wonderful king. The other thing that beautifully emphasized is verse 9. Uh, the, the Lord, the, God the Father, has set the Son above his companions, uh, his brothers, you and me, by anointing you with the oil of joy. Isn't that a lovely picture? You know how it worked in Old Testament times. Everyone was smelly because it was hot. And uh, so you'd walk into someone's house and no one had showers or deodorant. So you'd take a, a block of hardened spice and put it on someone's head and because it was hot, it would melt and oil would drip down them. And you know, It was like sure for men or women, whatever it was. The, um, it just sort of tidied everyone up a little bit. You're, you've been anointed with oil of gladness, with the oil of joy. Isn't that lovely to know? Above all his companions, isn't it lovely to know that when, if you're a Christian, when you reach glory, we'll all be delighted. Of course we will. We've sung here heaven's anthem. How wonderful it will be. It would be wonderful to be there. But the most joyful person of all will be Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? Here on earth, 
in his work of salvation, a man of sorrows, as Isaiah 53 put it, bearing burdens, being rejected, facing death upon a cross. Now, a risen saviour, joy. Nothing but joy. So what would you make of a joyful saviour? Beyond any joy that we'll have. Wonderful, he's that sort of uh, king and ruler. And at verse 10, the other one that goes with it, um, Psalm 102. In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, the heavens are the work of your hands. They'll perish, but you remain. So vivid this, I, mean, I couldn't help but, you know, before we packed away everything from the summer and the beach, the, um, here's the world, and it's a big place, and of course the picture here is, they will perish, verse 11, but you remain. The heavens and the earth will all wear out like a garment, We'll wrap them up like a robe. Like a garment, they'll be changed, but you remain the same. So quicker than I can squeeze the air out of a ball. (laughs) I did wonder just about popping it, but I'm too mean. And um, I need it. But but, yeah, before... Such a beautiful picture, isn't it? Jesus will just take the heavens and the earth, roll them up, remake them. Someone else can finish that. (laughs) Because your years, you remain the same and your years never end. Why would you not want to live for him? And we can live for lots of things in this world. But Jesus will just pack it down, roll it up, put it away. He's the one that remains with his people. We describe ourselves as a church or trying to, living now for eternity, of course. Of course, when this world's just going to get folded up, like your beach shorts, because you won't need them for a few months, stash them at the back of your cupboard, this world will be folded up, but Jesus is unchanging. So listen to him. Don't listen to other voices. So there's three three sets of... um, of uh, quotes, one emphasizing Jesus is the Son of God the Father, the second set, uh, he's superior to the angels, they just serve him. Three, he's eternal, unchanging, unlike everything else in the world. So the conclusion, conclusion verse 13 and 14, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? None. The obvious rhetorical response to the question, none. Are not all angels ministering servants sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Now that's fun, isn't it? Angels are sent to serve those who will inherit the fullness of salvation. That's quite fun, isn't it? The angels are sent to serve you and me. Now, Of course, what you don't want to do when you hear that is make the mistake of this passage and get obsessed with angels. What does that mean? What is that like? Does that mean I, does that mean I can sit around a swimming pool and they'll bring me a pina colada and, um, that'd be quite fun because they can float across and around and how quickly can they make drinks? Pretty quickly. Do they make good beer? I bet they make a good burger. I bet an angel makes a good burger. Don't do that because don't be obsessed by them. The point is, be obsessed with Jesus. Angels are just they're just servants. Don't get distracted from him. 
And just a little clarification, in the book of Hebrews, what that means is, don't get distracted from the eternal word who comes down to earth, dies a death as a propitiation for sins, physically raises, is raised from the dead, ascended on high, that Jesus. When the writer says, listen to Jesus, that's the Jesus he's obsessed with. The book of Hebrews is a bloody book, emphasising over and over again, Jesus shed his blood for your sin. That's the Jesus you want to be obsessed by, according to the book of Hebrews. Not the latest I, Jesus, seven or eight. Not Jesus, the fashion accessory, or just Jesus, the teacher, or whatever it may be. Good though those things are, the one who died for your sins, an enormous cost, that one. That's the one you need to be obsessed by. Because, and let me just apply this briefly before we move on. Because in our culture, and dare I say it acutely in a sort of London setting at the moment, many will listen to a different Jesus. And week by week may well listen to a Jesus that is proclaimed as saying, follow me, all will go well. Follow me, you'll get your job you want. Follow me, I'll return your health to you. Follow me, you'll be affluent. Follow me, you'll meet the man, the woman of your dreams. Uh, And that Jesus is either explicitly or implicitly proclaimed week on week in some places. The real problem with that, and why, if if you'll forgive me, why I hate that, is because life is not like that. And so when you're proclaimed that Jesus, the genie in the bottle, and when life is difficult and you bring the two together, what do you do? If that's who you think Jesus is, you say, I can't, that doesn't work, and you'll drift from him. Which is why the author is going to say to us, listen really carefully to Jesus. Listen very carefully indeed. Do you remember, he was a man of sorrows, before he was a saviour in glory. And that is the path his people take. So this is a book which will say, oh, I expect hardship now. But keep going. By faith, run the race as we've sung, and then is glory and sickness free and perfection and laughter endlessly. Listen to that Jesus. Not a false one. We'll give you easy promises, but you'll drift from him because he won't help you in this life. So chapter 2, 1 to 4, listen to him. Chapter 2, 1 to 4, listen to him. We must therefore pay care, excuse me, we must pay more careful attention therefore to what we've heard so that we do not drift. It's a lovely little sentence. Uh, Literally, verse 1, it is necessary to more abundantly pay attention to what we've heard. That's a silly sentence, isn't it? It is necessary to more abundantly pay attention to what we've heard. That's why they don't translate it that way, because it's a bit of a tongueful or a mouthful. But that's what he's saying. And so for you and me here, whatever state we walk in, however close our walk is with Jesus, the author says to us, be more obsessed with him. Listen even more carefully to him, not to other voices. Or the danger is we'll drift. That's the danger. 
that we'll drift away. It's a vivid little metaphor or language that gets used there, drift. It's like a boat slipping from its moorings. Or in the secular Greek of the time, it's like a ring slipping off a finger. You're swimming in the ocean and it's a bit cold and you... This is my second wedding ring, my first one. It got lost in the wretched Atlantic. It's far too cold to be swimming, but I'm very manly. And, um, <laughs> you know, I went for a swim. My ring never returned. It just drifted off. I wasn't really paying attention to my ring at the time. Just, you know, breaking world records, that sort of thing. <laughs> drift. Or like you might drift on a lilo. And if you saw in the papers in August... Lilos are dangerous things. You pick this up, this is, it made me smile. But lilos are dangerous things, the great danger of the summer. So uh, in August, in Clacton, two men drifted off to sea. Uh, they went out over a mile and the Coast Guard had to rescue them. Uh, in June, one Sunday in Skegness, nine youngsters drifted out to sea on lilos and the lifeboat had to co- collect them. Pete Newsome of Skegness Lifeboat said, it must be remembered, lilos are dangerous. Thanks, Pete. <laughs> but if you're on a lot, how does that happen? How do you drift out over a mile to see when you're on a lilo? Presumably because the sun is down, beating down on you. And I, I was going to bring in a lilo, but I thought, you know, you don't have so many inflatable things in one talk. <laughs> but you're there, you're there just, and it's pleasant, and you slightly drift in and drift off. And you're not concentrating at all on where the shore is or where anyone else is. And life is pleasant. You just drift. And so his point is, don't get distracted. Don't lose track of your bearings. Now we need to place this warning alongside others in the book. There are many others which say that people harden their own hearts. This isn't entirely passive. Just flick over, we'll look at this in a couple of weeks, but just flick over chapter 3, verse 12. It's another warning that comes after his... uh, Again, Jesus is wonderful, then comes a warning. Chapter 3, verse 12. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living good. Drifting from Jesus is not entirely a passive thing, says the writer or the author. In order to drift, you have made a decision about what's important. And you said, I don't need to worry too much about Jesus. Yeah, there's circumstances of life that will cause you to drift but there's a decision made as well, uh, is what he's saying. Why is it so serious to drift away? Well, verses 2 and 3. If the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, that's in the Old Testament, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? When the law was given at Sinai, the Israelites were terrified and screamed, we're going to die. It was horrible. And the writer is saying here, to turn your back upon the sun with his much clearer revelation is far worse. And you know that's true, he says. So this salvation which was first announced to us by the Lord Jesus was confirmed to us by those who heard him, that's the apostles. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, various miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What does that mean? I don't want to go off on a tangent, but I will. Uh, just for three minutes. 
What does he mean here? So uh, the Lord the Lord spoke, attested by um, uh, the apostles, confirmed by them, and they passed it on. And then God testified to it by signs, wonders. Is that what we should do here on a Sunday? Just have as many signs and wonders as we possibly can as a testimony to what Jesus has done? No. No, just bear with me, just three minutes. Don't want to go too much. The language of signs and wonders in the Bible does not equal miracle. These are different things. The two come similarly here. Throughout the rest of the Bible, signs and wonders are miraculous acts tied to significant acts of redemption. So throughout the Old Testament, there are many miracles, lots of miracles in the Old Testament. The language signs and wonders is applied to the redemption from slavery in Egypt. That gets that language, because it's a significant event in salvation history. In the New Testament, Jesus attests to his ministry by signs and wonders, because it's a significant act in the history of redemption. And so immediately afterwards you get the apostles, to a lesser extent, sure, but to some extent doing the same, because it is a significant event. So signs and wonders are tied to big redemptive events in the Bible. So I don't expect to see signs and wonders until Jesus returns again. Not the same as miracles. The Bible, is, to my mind, as far as I read it, is fully, fully um, positive about the possibility of God doing all sorts of miraculous events in his world today. He is God, he can do what he wants. Okay? But they don't attest the authority of what Jesus said. Signs and wonders, it's technical Bible language, does that. So it would be folly, and sometimes you see this, I hate saying this, but sometimes you see the buses driving uh, around London and on the back it will be, come to the O2 on this weekend for signs and wonders. That is not a biblical way of explaining the faith to someone. You never see Jesus doing that, or indeed the apostles. They respond to need out of compassion and attest the full healing and salvation that will be here in the next world. But they do it in response. You never get Jesus setting up a banner, unveiling a banner and saying, signs and wonders here, come along and get some. He doesn't do that. That's not biblical. So, what's going on here? The writer of Hebrews 2 is saying, signs and wonders, that language, were at the time of Jesus. They authenticated then a finished word about a finished work. Are you happy with that? I'm not saying there are no miracles today. I think there are. But signs and wonders attesting to the authority of what has taken place, unique for certain events in redemption history, biblical history. No. Listen to him. Listen to him. Do not drift away. Pay more attention carefully to what you've heard. That is to the finished word of Jesus Christ. Listen to him. You've got to listen to someone. It's inevitable in life. Or you go mad. If you don't, there is a reason why solitary confinement is a punishment. It's not nice. It's not nice being on your own and not listening to someone. Years ago, about 20 years ago, I uh, went to help out on some Christian summer camps in uh, Romania, in the mountains, Hargita Tabor, uh, the Mount- Hargita Mountains, if anyone knows that sort of area. 
very beautiful, enormously remote. Uh, and I got there, and there were two camps. Ten days, you're helping out in this camp, and then there was a three-day gap, and then the second camp for ten days. A load of people came for ten days, they left the Englishman there for three, and then a load of people arrived for ten days. And uh, someone had slightly forgotten who I was, that I'd be there, so I was left for three days in the mountains with one salami sausage and one loaf of bread. And I was a bit hungry, but the worst part about it was no one to speak to. No, I'm irritated, I'm, I'm extrovert, I get jumpy if I don't speak to people. And this is 20 years ago. You know, this is when mobile phones were the size of suitcases and about 10 people in the world owned them. There's no internet, there's no texting, there's no talking. You go a bit doolally after three days. I've recovered. <laughs> but you do just go, you know, I have to say in that period of time I prayed more, I read my Bible more than ever, I think probably. You've got to listen to someone. We all do. Who are you listening to? Don't call yourself a Christian. Who are you listening to? You've just got to bear in mind how that's influencing you. Do think for yourself. If you're a Christian, who are you listening to on a regular basis? Because the call of this, the writer here would be, wherever you find yourself this evening, pay more careful attention. So it's kind of a new year in, in, uh, in London terms. I'm going to say, very obviously, we want to be a church that is obsessed with Jesus Christ. Just obsessed with him. We're listening to him. We're telling others what we've heard from him. This evening, what we're listening. Have you heard this? Have you heard he says this? I was very struck when he said this to me this week. Listening to him. Do not drift. But it is necessary to more abundantly pay more careful attention to what we've heard. Be obsessed with listening to Jesus Christ. Don't drift from him. Let's pray together. Loving Heavenly Father, thank you that you do give us, as we've heard over the last two weeks, uh, a finished word about the finished work of Christ and how life-transforming that is. We thank you that you take that word and speak it afresh to us by your Spirit. Whenever we open the Scriptures, he is at work within us, impressing these truths, causing our eyes to rise up in faith and trust you. So Father, please would we be more obsessed with the words spoken by your Son and therefore not drift, but actively walk towards him. Become more like him. Grow in our appreciation for him. For our joy and for his. We ask in his great name. Amen.